Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's Program Notes for Upcoming Concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, the 21st of December through Saturday, the 23rd, feature guest conductor and violinist Nikolai Zneider. The program includes Beethoven's Violin Concerto and Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D Major, a work lasting about 42 minutes. Ideas for the Violin Concerto and the celebrated Fifth Symphony appear side by side in sketchbooks dating from 1806, reminding us that Beethoven often worked on a number of important pieces simultaneously, and that the lyrical and heroic sides of his musical nature were never completely separate. By 1806, the powerful C minor symphony had already been in the works for two years, but it wouldn't reach its final form until 1808. The serene and noble violin concerto, on the other hand, was written quickly in 1806 and finished just in time for its premiere that December. The concerto was written for Franz Clement, a gifted young violinist who was exploited at an early age by an enterprising father. Like Beethoven, he played in public for the first time when he was seven years old. But where the young Beethoven's early years were spent in Bonn, Clement was dragged throughout Europe's music centers by his father, who behaved as if he had a young Mozart in his care. In 1789, eight-year-old Franz started an album that in five years would encompass 415 pages of autographs and congratulatory messages gathered from leading figures in Germany, England, Holland, Belgium, and wherever his father took him. In 1791, when Haydn was in Oxford to receive his honorary doctorate, little Clement played at a concert in his honor, and Haydn dutifully signed his name in the boy's book. On a page dated 1794, Vienna, we find the autograph of Ludwig von Beethoven. It was a number of years before Beethoven and Clement met again, but after the violinist was appointed conductor and concertmaster of Vienna's Theater an der Wien in 1802, their paths often crossed. Clement was the concertmaster for the premiere of the Eroica Symphony in April 1805, and it was just a matter of months before Beethoven began his only violin to fulfill a request from Clement. Beethoven had started a violin concerto in the early 1790s when he was living in Bonn, but stopped work halfway through the first movement. Apparently, the concerto was written in some haste, and if popular legends can be trusted, was barely finished in time for the premiere on December 23, 1806, when it was performed without sufficient rehearsal. That same legend insists that Clement played the work at sight that night, and, as if credibility weren't already strained, that he interpolated a piece of his own between the first and second movements, playing with his violin held upside down. Like a number of works that have overcome unsuccessful premieres to find a large and enthusiastic public, Beethoven's Violin Concerto took some time to earn a place in the repertory. It doesn't quickly or easily reveal its special beauty, and a number of early performances were coolly received. Not until the historic London performance of 1844, with the 13-year-old Josef Joachim as soloist and Felix Mendelssohn conducting, did this concerto finally win approval. 
In the meantime, at the suggestion of pianist-turned-publisher Muzio Clementi, Beethoven arranged the concerto for piano and orchestra to secure a wider audience. The transcription cost him little effort, essentially finding something for the left hand to do while the right hand added minimal ornamentation to the original violin part, but it also found little success in this form, sounding makeshift and proving that what's sublime on the violin may well seem commonplace on the keyboard. That this concerto was written especially for Clement is apparent not only from the dedication, with its pun on clemency toward the poor composer, but from its graceful, delicate, and tender tone, all words used to describe Clement's elegant playing. Perhaps inspired by his soloist's musical nature, Beethoven finds an inner repose and an expansive, noble tone that's a remarkable contrast to the grand statements of the Eroica and Fifth Symphonies, until one remembers that these same years also produced the calm and gracious Fourth Symphony and the gentle G Major Piano Concerto. Donald Tovey was the first to point out that almost all of Beethoven's flashes of genius in this concerto are mysteriously quiet. The opening is a case in point. Four soft strokes on the timpani answered by gentle chords in the winds. It may well have seemed like madness to start a piece with unaccompanied drum beats in 1806. There's no precedent for such a thing. But the soft, dynamic, measured tempo and calm wind music preclude our hearing it as the least bit revolutionary. Even in 1806, it drew no particular criticism. What's considerably more troublesome and also marked piano is the entrance of the first violins, only eight bars later, imitating the drum beats on D sharp, probably the last note one would think of placing so prominently at this point in a D major concerto. Telvi further emphasizes that this surprising D sharp was written as E flat in the first sketches, suggesting Beethoven's own ambivalence about its function, and since it's not harmonized and thus explained till later in the movement, it nags at us for some time. The most important moment in any concerto is the entrance of the soloist, which is handled differently and with great imagination in each of Beethoven's mature concertos. The novelty of the fourth piano concerto, written the same year as this one for violin, is the unprecedented appearance of the unaccompanied soloist in the very first measure. Here, Beethoven takes the opposite approach, delaying the soloist's first notes as long as possible, and even then making the violin climb up almost unnoticed above the full orchestra before it begins to attract attention. From here, the solo plays tirelessly virtuosic music until the very last measures of the movement, even joining in after the cadenza, often singing at the very top of its range. There are many subtle touches here, like the absence of the drum beat when the solo violin plays the second theme, even though it had seemed an integral part of that music when the orchestra played it the first time. The Larghetto is, almost uniquely in Beethoven's output, music without action, conceived as a set of variations on a theme that goes nowhere, has no inherent contrast of material, and doesn't imply any change of key. The result is a romance, as Beethoven called it, of breathtaking stillness and restricted dynamic range, which rises once in the middle and again at the very last bars over a multitude of piano and double piano markings. There's fresh detail and invention at every turn and, surprisingly, a growing sense of energy. 
the violin even slips in an entirely new theme after the third variation and then goes on to the fourth as if nothing has happened. Beethoven stays steadfastly in G major until the very end when the simple move to the dominant to introduce the finale sounds altogether extraordinary. Since this kind of contemplative music doesn't end easily, the violin takes the situation in hand and moves directly into the pastoral theme of the rondo finale. This simple, genial tune is so distinctive that Beethoven sees no reason to alter even one note whenever it comes back, thus saving himself the trouble of writing it out each time, a useful shortcut when writing on deadline. The finale's progress is straightforward, with few surprises, except perhaps for two pizzicato notes from the soloist, the only ones in the whole concerto. As in the first movement, Beethoven makes something captivating of the soloist's trilling at the end of the cadenza, here dropping down into A-flat, the key most removed from D major, and then swinging back in a flash for the final bars. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Violin Concerto. And now on to Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5, a work lasting about 46 minutes. Dmitry Shostakovich first came to the United States in March 1949. Before a crowd of 30,000 people in Madison Square Garden, he sat at a piano and played the scherzo from his Fifth Symphony. He arrived here as an official participant in the Cultural and Scientific Conference for World Peace, and he came against his better judgment because Stalin had telephoned him and asked him to. It is a disturbing and symbolic image, this great man, shy and unassuming behind his thick glasses, being trotted out to perform his best-known symphonic music on a piano in a sports arena. This was but one of the many battles Shostakovich fought in his war between the public platform and his private thoughts. A photograph taken at the time shows Shostakovich, his eyes avoiding the camera, standing uneasily between Norman Mailer and Arthur Miller. Dmitry Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony is perhaps the best-known work of art born from the marriage of politics and music. In 1949, when the Soviet composer came to America, the circumstances of its creation were as famous as the music itself. The facts are few but telling. On January 28, 1936, while Shostakovich was working on his fourth symphony, Pravda denounced his opera, Lady Macbeth of Mstensk, in an article called Muddle Instead of Music. Although the opera had been triumphantly received in both Moscow and Leningrad during the previous two years and in more than 175 performances, it was suddenly and decisively attacked as fidgety, screaming, neurotic, coarse, primitive, and vulgar. Although Shostakovich himself was not the recipient of such well-chosen adjective, there was no question of where he now stood in the eyes of Soviet authorities. Shostakovich went ahead and finished his Fourth Symphony, a vast exploratory tragic work, but when it came time to unveil it in public, he had second thoughts and withdrew the score. It waited 25 years to be performed. And then after a long silence came his official response, written in just three months. Shostakovich now issued the creative reply of a Soviet artist to justified criticism, the astonishing phrase that is forever linked with the work's official title, Symphony No. 5. 
Sorting fact from fiction is no mere pastime in discussing Soviet music. On such distinctions hangs our understanding of important musical impulses. Many a listener, as well as political historian, has pondered the justification for the Soviet criticism and the motivation for the reply. For the record, we can consider the composer's own words written at the time, although they are less than fully enlightening. The theme of my fifth symphony is the making of a man. I saw man with all his experiences in the center of the composition, which is lyrical in form from beginning to end. In the finale, the tragically tense impulses of the earlier movements are resolved in optimism and joy of living. There is, of course, some incontrovertible evidence, like the wild success of the Fifth Symphony when it was introduced on November 21, 1937, in Leningrad, under the baton of Eugene Moravinsky, and the subsequent official embrace of Shostakovich speedily returned to favor. In the end, the music must speak for itself. In place of the screaming, primitive music that got him into trouble, Shostakovich now gives us clarity and brilliance, and despite intermittent tensions, we have a happy ending. Like Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, and Mahler before him, Shostakovich has written a fifth symphony that sets out to triumph over adversity, with the major key supplanting the minor in the final movement. The power of this music is undeniable, although not everyone was satisfied that its deeper content was really politically correct. After hearing Shostakovich's new symphony for the first time, the great novelist Boris Pasternak wrote, He went and said everything, and no one did anything to him for it. Clarity of form and texture is the hallmark of the large and not uncomplicated first movement. From the jagged Grosse Fuga-like opening theme to the climactic grotesque march over a relentless snare drum rhythm, Shostakovich takes pains not to lose us in intricate lines of counterpoint or disorienting harmonies. For every page of the score that calls on the full resources of the orchestra, there are countless others on which few notes are written. The second theme, for example, is a serene, soaring violin melody of wide leaps, we're never quite certain where it will land next, over simple chords that slowly change colors as they repeat their tum-ta-ta pattern. The allegretto that follows, a traditional scherzo and trio form, is as merry and good-natured as any music that came from Shostakovich's pen. If this were the only music of his that we knew, we might not be so quick to read a note of irony into the solo violin's teasing melody in the trio. But this is music in a singularly untroubled vein, and that is precisely what the Madison Square Garden crowd was meant to hear. Shostakovich claimed he wrote the Largo at white heat in three days, information that is hard to digest once one hears this calm and controlled music moving slowly over vast, wide-open spaces. The lucid, thin textures occasionally turn spartan, a solo oboe melody against a single sustained violin note, a flute duet accompanied by a quiet harp. But every phrase carries meaning. Every note is indispensable. If darkness blankets the eloquent Largo, the finale erupts with power and brilliance. A triumphant conclusion was mandatory, particularly after the troubled thoughts of the preceding slow movement. When the D minor struggles finally shift into an affirmative D major blast, 
It is only our hindsight, our knowledge of the undeniable sorrow and despair of Shostakovich's last works that suggests this happy ending is somehow forced. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.